you would open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we are so glad to be here because, Father, we've been saved by the blood of Christ. And we've been able to gather together, Father, and to give you the reverence and the worship that you so rightly deserve. We've been able to sing together and pray together, hear your word uh, being read to us, confessed our sins together. We've been reminded, Lord, that you are a God who does pardon iniquity, who does cast our sins into the sea. And, Father, we have so much to be grateful for. And so we just wanted to say thank you. And, Father, as a part of our worship, we also open your word and we read it and then we We want to think about it. We want to study it a little bit. We want to have a a better understanding of those things that you seek to communicate to us. We want to know, Father, why you have preserved certain things for us to to read and to know. We know, Lord, that it's to our benefit, for our profit, that these things have been uh, preserved. And we ask, Lord, that you would give to us the help that we need to be able to focus, to be able to think biblically about the Bible, uh, to be able to to look at the Word and to think about our lives in light of what the Word says. Also, Father, to think in ways of how we can apply the truths of the Word of God to what we do, to the way that we think, to the decisions that we make. That, Father, our lives may be complete and full in every way. That we may not only know the wisdom of God, but, Father, we may live it out. That it may become a part of who we are as individuals. That, Father, we may truly know you. We are grateful, Father, that you know us. And so we ask, Lord, that your word would have its way in us. The Lord, it would accomplish its work that you desire in us. That, Father, we, each one of us, regardless of our age, would become more like Christ in every way. And so we thank you. And we do ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Ecclesiastes 12, beginning in verse 9. Besides being wise... The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I came across across a quote the other day, which I thought was pretty good. It kind of made me smile. And it said, inside every old person is a young person wondering what has happened. I don't know if you think that when you look in a mirror, when you get up in the morning, but there's a great deal of truth to that. In verse 9 of Ecclesiastes 12, it tells us a little more about Solomon. Again, Solomon has been writing. It seems that he has been writing from the viewpoint of one who has kind of put God on the back burner, but God keeps Moving forward again in his thoughts as he looks at life and 
is trying to come to an understanding of life, trying to grasp the meaning of life despite what he views. And he sees a lot of what he considers to be inconsistencies. We have an understanding of what that is and why that is because we understand the curse of sin. That when Adam and Eve sinned, it just messed up everything. It messed up our relationships with each other. It messed up what we think about. It's messed up the way we think. It's messed up what we do. It makes things much more difficult. There's just a slew of things that causes a great deal of trouble in the world. It's all because of sin. And as a result, it kind of causes things to be a little skewed where we know that those who live righteously should be blessed by God and have wonderful lives and it seems a large number of them are suffering all the time. We, we have an understanding of, of right and wrong. We have a sense of justice and we look around and we see justice isn't always done. In fact, sometimes it's done very rarely. And if you live in other countries... It seems that justice only goes to those who can afford it. And even then, a great deal of the time, it's not justice that's being done. And trying to make sense of this, trying to, to, to find meaning in your life in the midst of all of this is, is impossible. In fact, as he says over and over again, it's really like trying to grab hold of vapor or smoke. You, just, you try to grab it and everything just kind of moves away and pushes away. And so as he comes to the conclusion, he talks about himself and says that besides being wise, and we want to keep in mind that Solomon was, was, was well known for being a very wise man. People would travel literally for days, weeks, and months to come hear him hold court, so to speak, to hear him decide matters between those who are having difficulties. They wanted to hear the wisdom that this man has. It's kind of like at times when individuals want to hear, you know, people like Ravi Zacharias. You just want to hear how he says things. You want to hear how he answers the individual who says, why should I become a Christian? You want to hear him answer individuals who have seemed to have come up with some things that, that cause us difficulty in, in being believers. How is he going to respond to that? How is he going to going to going to say the things he's going to say. And sometimes we, we sit there or we stand there depending on where we're at and we go, man, it's just amazing how he can come up with all those things. How he reads the word of God and how he thinks philosophically and, and how he's able to, to find all these holes in the argument of the individual. Because when I heard them speak, I'm thinking, oh no, this is another one of those things that's going to cause us Christians a lot of trouble. And then by the time Ravi gets done or people like him, we're like, yeah, it's not a big deal. And so we're astounded at the wisdom and so people would come from far and wide to hear him speak. So he says here that, that in addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, he explored, he arranged many proverbs. In fact, it says that he sought to find delightful sayings to accurately write down the words of truth. The word that is translated arranged or he talks about him exploring and arranging uh, many proverbs there are many who think that it might be better understood in this context that really what he was doing is he was correcting when it when it says that he weighed explored and arranged he wasn't just categorizing proverbs or truths 
But he was looking at, at all the wisdom that was out there and he was thinking about it and he was correcting the ones that were wrong. In other words, he wasn't just arranging and composing them. He was the one who was putting them together so that they would not only make sense, but that they would be true. In fact, he is, uh, some say that the word that he uses here, taquan, is a word which means something which is bent and cannot be straightened. The use of the term here suggests that there is wisdom material that needed to be straightened out. And it needed to be straightened out because in some way it was bent. It just it wasn't straight. And there's, you know, people have different proverbs that we hear. and There are times that we recognize, ah, that's not true. That's, that's not really right. Yeah, that's not always true. And, and, and then, of course, if you compare things to the Word of God, then, of course, we want to make sure that those things are pointing in the right direction. And if they're not, then we know that they are inaccurate. So one of the activities that Solomon was involved in was to correct wisdom uh, because in some way it had been corrupted. He achieved this through listening to the wisdom of others, again, researching the matter for himself. Again, this description of him shows a careful procedure that he went through and highlights the quality of his work. And if you read through the book of Proverbs, it was written by, most of it was written by Solomon, we can see that. Things that are basically, in most cases, true. And they're very insightful in helping us to understand individuals, helping us to be able to understand where an individual is coming from. It shows us over and over again in the book of Proverbs that when you observe how an individual is behaving, that that is revealing a great deal of what is truly in their heart. That's revealing to us characteristics about the individual. And, and he wants us to make decisions based on that. There are certain things that come out about individuals. And so when you see this happen to an individual, when you see an individual displaying this kind of attitude, then either that person shouldn't be trusted or what they said shouldn't be trusted. Or you should not give them a certain amount of responsibility because they've proven themselves to not be able to handle that. That when you see also good things in certain people, when you see the way they do things, and it talks about how individuals act and behave, and that when you see certain characteristics, that individual can be trusted because that individual is doing this or that. And so there's a great deal of just common things about life and being able to, to work with people and understand people and accomplish things is given to us in the book of Proverbs. And that's the kinds of things that he's talking about here that Solomon spent a great deal of time kind of assembling and putting together. The importance of this cannot be overstated because he felt it was necessary to correct the wisdom of other sages. And, of course, that clearly indicates that there are problems within that movement. It's kind of like when, when kids, kids go to college, and, and I think it's still the case that at some point in their first two years, they have to take kind of a, an introduction to philosophy course. And that can be really dangerous. I'm not against that. I think it's fine for individuals to take an introduction to philosophy course. But the problem is for those individuals who are believers who aren't well grounded in the word of God, that can easily cause them to just go off the rails and begin to doubt everything that they've been heard. There's lots of reasons for that. Uh, usually it's because the person who's teaching the class already has an axe to grind against Christians and they're not exactly reading and learning about Christian philosophers. They're not going to be given um, the, uh, the other view of things, meaning from a Christian perspective. And so unless they're well-grounded or, or already uh, accomplished in, in, in thinking about things as they ought to as, as Christians, it can cause them to, uh, as we would say, begin to lose their faith. And it's happened to many. Quite a few. We should never underestimate the strength of that. 
So again, Solomon then was seeking carefully not only to do that, but it says that he sought to find words of delight, meaning that he wanted to arrange these things and kind of present them in such a way that it would bring great joy to the heart. Some said that uh, it never says here that he actually accomplished that, but that he was looking to do that. Uh, But the thing that's true about Solomon is, is that he never dilutes his message and he never tries to flatter anybody that he was teaching. His goal was to bring to them truth. Want to make sure that they were thinking in the right way. Notice what he says about these things. Looking at verse 11, he says, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are collected sayings, and they are given by one shepherd. A goad, in case you were unfamiliar with that, is a rod with an iron spike, or it's sharpened at one end, and it was used to drive oxen. In other words, the idea would be as you're driving the oxen, when he wants to go one way, you don't want to go that way, you would inflict pain. You would goad him in going in the right direction. You want, you want the ox, ox to know that if he keeps going to the right, the pain's going to be persistent and maybe get worse. And so then he will correct his course and then you stop with the goad. And that's the idea that's behind that. So what he's telling us here is that's what the words of wisdom are. The words of wisdom are like goads. They're, they're, they may cause pain. We, we may feel pain whenever we come to realize that we're wrong or going in the wrong direction or that we're unwise. But he's saying that's a good thing. It, it, it's a good thing that it causes us pain in that way. That's what the Word of God is for because we, are, we naturally go astray. We need, to be, we need to be taught the Word of God. That's why when it comes to Christians, everything has always been centered on the Scripture. And there's always a learning of the Word of God. Sometimes it can be really difficult for us to grasp how... Uh, magnificent and how far-reaching the Word of God really is in everyday living because we still are raised for the most part in a place, our country, that has been deeply affected by the presuppositions of Scripture. That there's right, that there's wrong, uh, that, that you know, our concepts of justice, it just goes on and on. Our, our, our concept of the family, all of those things really are shaped by Scripture. They're not shaped by anything else. And so because of that, we don't really see that. And let me just kind of give you an example. There was was a book that I read several years ago. It was called The Book That Changed Your World. It's just a fabulous book. I love the way that it's written and the way that it describes uh, things. It's it's written by uh, Vishal Magwaldi. Um, I'm sure that's a name you're all very familiar with. (laughs) Um, He's only written a couple of books. But he's he's talking in the book. He he, uh, describes... uh, because he grew up in India. He's describing being somewhere in Europe uh, with a friend of his. And uh, he was staying with a family. And so he volunteered with his friend to go get milk for the family. And where the family got their milk from was there was a farm, uh, a milk farm that was pretty close. And you just, that's where you, you didn't go to the grocery store. You go to this place to get the milk. It was cheaper that way. It was fresher. And so they, when they went there, uh, it was very clear that there was kind of like a, a cabin-like structure that you would go in and you would pick up the milk. And when they went in, there was, there was no one there. And there was a, a container where it was clear people were putting money. Uh, there was the price of the milk. And so they grabbed the milk and they put the money inside and they left. And this one friend said to the other, he says, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. He said... What do you mean it's the most amazing thing you've ever seen? He says, in my country, 
If you ever had a place like that, the first person who goes in would take all the milk and all the money. Why would someone just leave money for the milk? And he said, well, because that's the honest and right thing to do. And he said, in my country, that thought would never occur to us. And as this guy was relaying the story, what he was writing about is he was trying to answer the question, so why is it that people in this country, in the country they were in, would think to not take all the milk and not take all the, uh, the money and leave money for the milk? Why would they think that? And as he began to think about it and do research, he says it's because of the influence of the scripture. And as he kind of weaves that story throughout the entire book, he then begins to explain how the word of God uh, affected the country of India for many, many years and how many things in India began to change until uh, they kicked the Brits out, which he wasn't making any political statement as to whether that was good or whether that was bad. He was just saying when that took place and then the influence of the scripture began to wane and how they returned back to the way that they were living before. And it was just kind of eye-opening because we often just assume, well, of course everybody knows that if that's a situation, you should leave money for the milk. Of course. But there is no of course to that. That doesn't exist. It's because the influence of people who, who base truth on the Bible that changes the way people think about things. There's a practice in India. They've been trying to fight it now for uh, actually uh, probably over almost 30 years. And I think it's beginning to, uh, they're beginning to have some success. In other countries where there's a very large Hindu population, they're having some success. Uh, but normally, in, in, like in India and some of those countries, it's not unusual when your son marries for he and his wife to basically live in your house with you, or maybe uh, like it, is, it was in Mauritius, they would just build on top of the house, and that's where they would live. Uh, and that was just a common thing. And as a result, there would oftentimes be conflict between the son's wife and his mother. And there's this uh, uh, practice that was never, that's evil, that was never prosecuted. It goes by different names. In some, in some uh, areas, it's called bride burning. But that is where the uh, mother-in-law gets very angry with her daughter-in-law and she will grab a pot of boiling water or maybe boiling oil and throw it on her, on her daughter-in-law and cause severe burns at times requiring hospitalization. The police are never called. The husband never scolds his mother. There is no apologies made or, or even thought to be necessary. It's just a part of how things are. How can people live like that for decades and never once think that that's a problem? They think it's unfortunate. It's too bad that happened. Oh, it's too bad so-and-so got burned. Oh, you know, her mother-in-law, she's just always angry. Why was there never a law enacted before saying that that was wrong and an individual should be maybe punished, that that's somehow criminal? What's happening now is being introduced by those individuals who are introduced, who have been uh, influenced by other countries, usually those who have been influenced by the Bible. So it's, it's an amazing thing. And many things we just kind of take for granted aren't, aren't thought in those terms in other countries. And it goes back to what the Word of God has to say. 
When it comes to this phrasing here, when he says the words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed, there's a difference of opinion as to what it means, nails firmly fixed. Some believe that it's kind of, it follows Hebrew uh, parallelism. In other words, when it comes to kind of a poetry kind of thing, that you, you repeat the same thing. And that the nails firmly fixed are kind of like pounding nails in a baseball bat. And because the individual is poor and he can't afford an iron uh, goad, so he makes his own goad for the cattle. And so he puts a nail in the uh, bat, uh, and then when the ox begins to go the wrong way, he can, you know, he can hit it uh, with the sharp end of the nail that's in the bat and get the, uh, the ox to go in the proper way. So some think that, that that's, that's what he's doing here. And I tend to lean that way, but it's, it's, not, uh, it's not a real big deal. Some think that what he's trying to say here is that, that the words of the wise are like goads, that you're causing pain and making sure the individual goes in the right way, uh, but that you can kind of hang your hat on them, that, that they're firmly established like a nail in a wall, and they're not going to go anywhere, and so you can always trust them, and that's what's taking place. And, of course, um, uh, the last part there, they are given by one shepherd. We see here where he's kind of moving back to where the credit should go to the individual. And the individual here that these things are coming from, that this is not just, these aren't just words of wisdom that's like, well, that's pretty good. I think I'll follow that. I think I won't. He wants to know that the shepherd who truly cares about his people, that's where this is coming from. Again, emphasizing the, the involvement that God has in our lives and his desire to guide and direct us. Remember that all of us need to be guided and directed as human beings. We need to be told how it is that we should be living our life because we don't come to these things naturally. Natural man doesn't do this. And so when it comes to our relationships, the husband and wife, that's why we, that's why you may not have thought of it this way, but that's why we have all these things that churches do. We'll have a a seminar or we'll have maybe a series of messages on a biblical view of marriage. Well, why do we have that? Well, because there's a biblical view of marriage that is different than a human view of marriage. You know, there's a tendency we have to either diminish marriage or, or, you know, act in certain ways about marriage. So what does God say about it? There's a biblical view of how we are to raise our children and, and the kind of responsibilities that we have. There's a biblical view of how we are to deal with conflict. There's um, a biblical view of how we are to uh, handle disappointment and tragedy that comes into our lives. And so we, we need to be taught what the Word of God says so that we know how to handle these things correctly so that our lives can be honored to God and so that our lives can be satisfying for ourselves as well. So that we can have joy. So that we can experience joy. So we can experience peace and contentment in this life. So, know, so we know how to do things. Verse 12, he says, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. So some, of, some think that when he, he makes this statement about the making of many books is no end. And that much study is wearisome. That somehow he has a negative view of learning. I don't think that it's a negative view of learning. I think what he wants us to do is, is once again, he wants us to be careful in going beyond what the Word of God says. Beyond, uh, be careful in going beyond, like, like taking the Scripture further than what it says. Be, be careful in looking at other places for wisdom. It's not that it's bad for reading all these books that we have out there, but our marker, our guide is going to be the Word of God. That's the way that we evaluate everything. Even if someone is a Christian philosopher <coughs> or a Christian help, self-help book, the idea is, well, does it line up with the Scripture? 
And we want to make sure that that is always our guide to make sure that it's, that it's right, that it's correct. We just want to make sure that we're not going beyond the Word of God, that we're implementing the Word of God. That's why I've said before that we need to be careful um, that we don't allow or permit the books of man to rob us of God's wisdom. I think I mentioned to you before that at one time I used to manage a Christian bookstore. It was a very long time ago when I was still living in Hawaii. And, and for whatever the reason, I was, uh, I was talking to a, a young man who was, he had all kinds of questions about divorce and remarriage and all those types of things. And um, was telling me that, that he had read this book by a Christian pastor and that whatever he was thinking of doing, it was okay. And I said, I don't think so. I said, that's not what the Bible says. He said, oh, this guy, he explains it really well. And so he, he kind of gave me the book, and I, I read through it. And the guy was using the Bible. Man, the conclusions he was coming to was just wrong. I was like, man, how does this happen? And so out of curiosity, we used to have a stack of books that was, uh, each book was about that thick. And there, was, there were six of them. And, and, and what those books contained was every single book imprint in the United States of America. And it was listed by, I think also in Europe, and it was listed by title or author, and so you could look these things up. So I, I began the process of trying to find every single Christian book that was written on uh, um, divorce and remarriage. And I don't know if I got all of them, but I, I found 38. And so I bought all 38 and read them. Read all of them. Conclusion number one, as a Christian, you can pretty much believe whatever you want about divorce and remarriage, you'll find a Christian book that agrees with you. It was unbelievable. It was all over the place. There was even a, guy, a book written by a guy who at one time was considered to be pretty solid, and uh, he and his wife were involved, besides passing the church, they were involved in a ministry that was uh, helping uh, in this shelter that took in women who had been raped and abused and and. It would offer counseling and all different kinds of things to help them out. And there was this one young woman who had been brutally raped, and he was instrumental in leading her to the Lord. And as they ministered in, the, uh, in this shelter, through the process of time, which I think was between three and five years, I'm not sure, doesn't really matter, he then divorced his wife and married her. And then wrote a book and said how that was all designed by God. And there were then other Christians who said, what a great book. It'll really touch your heart. <laughs> yeah, it'll touch your heart, all right. Thank goodness at that time there was still enough backbone within the evangelical movement uh, of Christianity to, sit, to kind of say, yeah, that, that's not right, that's wrong. And, and so he was, you know, because he used to be an individual who would go to a lot of places and he would be one of the keynote speakers and that ended uh, when that book came out. So the thing is, is that we want to make sure that we don't go beyond what the Word of God says, and the warning is here. Be careful of those things who, those who want to add to them. So we want to test the, men, the, the books of men by the truth of the Word of God. And we want to make sure that we are testing everything by the Word of God. So the question comes to mind when it comes to you and me is this. Is do you allow the Word of God, do you allow the words of God to inform you about life, about everything in your life? Do you let the word of God dispel your illusions? Remember that you left, that, that left to yourself, you will not choose what is right. So when it comes to the word of God, when the word of God commands us to forgive others, do you really submit yourself to what the word of God says, or are there certain people that you, you're not going to forgive? 
What you do is you'll call it something else. That really is what the issue is. And so this family member or whoever they may happen to be is someone who you are, you're, you're holding something against them. And we may, we may all just say, well, what it is is I've forgiven them. I just don't trust them. And you, know, you still treat them poorly. You're still, you still have these adverse feelings towards that individual. So what it is is the word of God is, 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 is going against the way that you're living and you're just ignoring it. So when was the last time that you and I allow the word of God, in a sense, to cause us to do something either that we are against or that we are uncomfortable with? Or do we just assume that everything in the word of God automatically lines up with everything we're already doing in life? Because it, it probably isn't. And so we don't approach the word of God that way. You know, we're, we're, we're fairly comfortable with where we are in our lives as Christians. And it is, seems to be the rare individual who allows the word of God to dictate that you should be doing something different when it comes to the way you're handling this situation or when it comes to the attitude you have towards this person, whether that person is a believer or a non-believer, whether it's a work situation or a, uh, a family situation or whatever the case may happen to be. Do we really allow the word of God to speak to us in that way? Or do we just kind of gloss over? We, we, we hear it so often it no longer really penetrates beyond the eardrum and doesn't get to the brain and to the heart. We're not really ingesting the word of God for ourselves. You know, open ourselves up to what the word of God has to say. In fact, sometimes the way that we do that is we really don't spend much time in the word of God at all. If you and I are not ingesting the word of God, we are not opening ourselves up to the word of God, and all you are left with is whatever is running around in your darkened mind, thinking that you are thinking rightly when you're only fooling yourself. We need the word of God to help to, to bolster and maybe to implement that filter that we need when it comes to how we think about things and then how we come to decide about things. What it is that we should do, what does the Bible say? How should I react in this situation? What does the Bible say? How should I respond to this individual? What does the Bible say? The Bible has a lot to say. Oftentimes, it's not just in some little pithy saying. There's things we have to reason through and talk about. We want to incorporate the entire Word of God. And if we're not ingesting the Word of God on a regular basis, we can't do that. That cannot be done. And you may at times find yourselves at odds with those who know the Word of God maybe a little better. Remember that there is no other navigational system for your soul other than the Word of God. There isn't. There is no other. It doesn't exist. Whatever's out there is wrong, and it's incorrect. We have to ask ourselves, do we delight in the word? Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've always found that question really hard because I don't really think of myself as being overly emotional. I'm emotional, but like anybody else, but I'm not overly emotional. So I don't think, do I delight <laughs> in the word of God? You know, or, or giddy. That's probably because I misunderstand what the word delight means. But whenever I hear that, that's what I think. So as a result of that, I, I don't think that I'm delighting as I read the Word of God. I don't feel like I'm delighting in the Word of God. But I came across this that's a little helpful. This individual wrote this. Finding delight in the Bible is not found by how often you read it or by how much of it you read, not by whether you find it easy uh, uh, or difficult to read, but by whether you approach the Bible with the expectation to be surprised or the expectation to receive revelation or to... Uh, or to have the expectation to be astonished or to marvel. 
Now, I, I can relate to that. When I read the Word of God, I want to be reminded. I want to be taught. I want my thinking to continually be changed and solidified by what the Word of God says. That's delighting in the Word of God. So it's not always this, this happy thing that somehow you have to be you know, giggling on the inside when you read the Word of God. And so if that's the definition that we're going with, then, then hopefully the answer is yes. I do delight in the Word of God. One individual has stated this, that because of an ongoing ignorance of the Bible, the Bible uh, um, is something that they always want to read with a great deal of interest. In other words, I'm ignorant of the Word of God, I want to know the Word of God better, so I'm going to read it. And they said that the attitude they bring to the Bible is this, I am never going to be in a position where I'm not instructed by the Word of God. And that is the attitude that we are to bring. Because they know the Bible can be understood. The person approaches the Bible with a certain view of themselves. And they're always expecting to learn something. Psalm 19, let me read this to you quickly. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than the honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward." A man known as Pastor Gibson says, To speak like this requires a certain view of yourself. If I am poor, so the Bible is precious. I am hungry, so the Bible is the sweetest foods. I am unsure, disoriented, and floundering, so the Bible is sure and trustworthy. So again, the question we need to ask ourselves is, when was the last time you submitted to the Scriptures and acted on what it says, even though you did not like it? I even had an individual one time who had become a Christian, and this is what he told me. He told me, he said, when I heard, for, and he said he didn't know how many times he'd heard it, but when I heard the gospel explained, he says, when I began to understand it, I didn't like it. I didn't like it because I knew that what it was saying was, is that I am a worse person than I imagined myself to be. He said, I didn't like it because I knew that if I became a Christian, I was going to have to become a different man. I knew that if I became a Christian, I was going to have to forgive my wife. He knew that if I, be, he said, he knew that if he became a Christian, he was going to have to stop doing. And he was, this is in jail. So there were several things he was doing as far as how he made his livelihood. He said, I knew I was going to have to stop. He said, I didn't like that. I didn't like any of that. He said, I also knew that I was doomed for hell, and I didn't like that either. And I knew there was only one way that I was going to be able to escape, and that was to do what I didn't want to do. Believe in Christ and give him my whole life. I did not want to do that, but I had to do that. And I did that. He says, now the amazing thing is, is that I want to forgive my wife. And I don't know where that came from because I've only been a Christian for a day. He says, and I don't want to go back to what I was doing before. For some reason, he says, that's gone. And that was my livelihood. He says, you know what's crazy? He says, I'm actually looking forward to getting out and getting a job. I've never had a job in my life. He said, oh, yeah, I worked at selling drugs, etc., but that wasn't a job. He says, what's happening to me? I said, well, that's what God does. He goes, I know. It's insane. I didn't want any of this to happen, and it's happening. That's what he's talking about. 
maybe for some of us as believers, we've also, maybe we've gone back into a position that we're more comfortable once again resisting the word of God. And the way we do that is we no longer even want to know what it says. One individual said this, you will know that you know God when sometimes what he makes you weep, that, that what he says makes you weep as he humbles your pride, reverses your expectations, upsets your priorities, offends your behavior, and challenges your thinking. <laughs> Deuteronomy 5.29, God says this, Oh, that they had such a mind as this, always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. As Solomon has pointed out, we live in a crooked world that cannot, with any level of human effort, be made straight. It is cursed, making the kindness of God something difficult to visualize. Consider all the various things that mark our lives. Unstable jobs, orphans, judicial corruption, blown tires, broken legs, sex trafficking, leaky faucets, divine sovereignty versus human responsibility, failed adoptions, monthly bills, envy, Project deadlines, rainy vacations, broken marriages, chronic back pain, pride, pornography, slippery roads, severed relationships, selfishness, racism, bee stings, abortion, and the ever-present death of loved ones or ourselves. This is our world. And sometimes we cry, why us? Or why her? Or why him? Why this hard? Why this way? Why this long? Yet like Job, we have no answer. We hear no answer. We gain no clarity, oftentimes only more vexation. Our growth in wisdom only raises more questions as our attempts to comprehend fully what God is doing or why he is doing it always reach, reaches dead ends, at least at some level. All indeed is meaningless. Both our creatureliness and the curse make life an enigma, as puzzling and frustrating as trying to guide the sea breezes into a different course. But... While a shepherding of the wind is impossible, there is one shepherd who oversees and orchestrates orchestrates all, including the course of the wind itself. In him we can trust. For as the one shepherd of all, he is both able and willing to protect and provide for all who fear him. Though we are not in control, he is. And even though life continues to be puzzling, we can receive life as a gift and find joy resting in the arms of him who makes all puzzles for our good and his glory. For the believer, we know this is true, and we only need to be brought back on course. For those who do not know Christ, you will never be brought back on course, because there is no course for you to be brought back onto until you come to Christ. Until you come to realize that you yourself are the making of all of these problems that you have. Because the problems in the world have always been and always will be until the Lord returns. And your inability to deal with life is not just because you need to learn some new management techniques. It's because you need an absolute change of heart. And only Christ can do that. I want to read you the words of a uh, hymn that was written by William Cooper. I told the group Wednesday night that this was a man who suffered from severe depression uh, back uh, in the days, back in the 1700s. And he struggled with his salvation and with everything because of these great struggles that he had. But, and even though at times he felt like despairing, he didn't. But this is what he wrote uh, in one of his uh, times when he was, I don't know if he was coming out of depression or going into depression, but it doesn't really matter. This is what he wrote. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. 
He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, take fresh courage. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. And so as Solomon says, God is going to bring every work into judgment. And so we should love God with all our heart, mind, and soul and follow his commandments. In that, we will find contentment and peace and satisfaction. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your grace and your love and for the honesty of the book of Ecclesiastes. Lord, it can be a very difficult book at times because of what Solomon says and what he observes and the conclusions he seems to come to. Father, we thank you for the truth of that book and that we are worshiping a God who deals in reality. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given to us a very real answer. It gives to us a very, uh, that helps us to deal, Father, with the very real problems that we have. It begins, Father, with the very real separation that we have from you. And so, Father, we again, as believers, thank you for the forgiveness of our sins and the hope that we have for the future because of Christ. And Father, for those here today who do not know Christ, we pray, Lord, that you will ensure that they will never, ever have even a temporary sense of hope because it's a false hope until, Lord, they come to Christ, believe in Christ, and accept the promises that God has given to them through him. Thank you, Father, again for your great patience with us. We do thank you, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Before we stand and sing, once again, if you, uh, if you have any questions about life, about the difficulties you're having in life, your inability to deal with the struggles of life, I would encourage you, whether it's myself or Tim, whoever, uh, that uh, you consider to be a wise believer to talk to them about life and about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that if you do not know him, that you can come to know Christ today. That you can believe in Christ and know that your sins are forgiven. That you will be united with him. That he will be your father and you will be his child. And you will be able to enter into his presence at any time in prayer because of Christ. We'd be more than happy to share with you what we possess, which is the gospel of Christ, which gives to us, again, a very real hope in the evil world in which we live in.